So, all right, let's have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll get into we're, we're going to finish our study on repentance tonight. This is the plan. So, let's uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we're uh, grateful tonight for the opportunity to come together this evening. Uh, time to. Uh, dive into your word together uh, in fellowship and father that we could be uh, uplifted and encouraged edified challenged uh, convicted tonight by the things that your scripture brings forth to us and father i pray for uh, integrity on our parts as we handle your word uh, that father we would do it accurately and um, that we would apply it uh, in our lives uh, with honest effort and uh, as we talk about repentance maybe uh, kind of erasing the, the way that we've defined that in the past and um, try to take a look at this with some fresh eyes and just see the scriptural pictures of it that, that we've been been laying out and um, you know maybe ask ourselves some some hard questions about that as we go and uh, we pray for uh, again just uh, just uh, wisdom tonight as we we look into that um, thankful for the opportunity thankful for everyone that came out tonight to be a part of this and uh, father we pray all this in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior amen <clears throat> okay so the, the video, you, you all, has everyone heard the news, Jake? Okay, so last week's class wasn't recorded. Uh. <laughs> and uh, it was, there's video of it. If you can read mouths, like you'll be fine, um, right? Yeah, I mean it's 720p and you're at a distance. So it's okay, yeah, so maybe not, yeah, but that's well, all right. Yeah, <laughs> we could zoom in. Yeah, all right. Well, we're not going to go over that again. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. I got a face for radio. So, <clears throat> all right. Uh, well, what we got into last week, we we looked at repentance. Um, tried to define that. Uh, we looked at an Old Testament picture of repentance. We we went back into uh, Genesis. We saw that in Genesis chapter six, the first person in the Bible that repents is God. And we have a hard time with that sometimes because, you know, the way that we, we define repentance, we think that repentance means you repent because you did something wrong, uh, you repent because you've got sin in your life. And so, but, you know, when we look at that in Genesis chapter 6, like I said, the King James Bible translates that repent. God, it repenteth God that he made man. And uh, that's not a typo. That's not an error. That's, that's accurate. That's a, that's, a, that's a good translation there. And, uh, and so if that causes issues with our theology, then we probably have some misunderstandings about that word or we we you know need to kind of check our definitions a bit and so what we looked at those we saw with God that when he repented the day, and that was the question it's like what happened the day God repented okay well number one you know there was sorrow and that that motivated him to act and so that lines up with with what we see in in scripture elsewhere as well and so God, there, there was a sorrow there, and then God decided to start over. That's what it motivated him to do, to make a new start. And so one of the things I wanted you to, you to talk about is that word, that word in the repentance. When you look at it, there is, you know, we talked about in the Greek, and you see it in the Old Testament, even though we're talking about a Greek definition, that metanoia is about a, it, like I said, it's actually, when we say change of mind, uh, but a more accurate translation of that would be an afterthought because it's, it's, a, it's a change that takes place after. It's a change with a focus on what comes after. 
And so it's just like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, like the focus is on the butterfly, not on the caterpillar, right? And so like the focus is what comes next. And when God repents, you know, it, he brings up how bad the world is, that the only inclination of the heart is only evil all the time. It repents God that, 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 that he made man. And then he comes up with a plan. But from that point on, he doesn't bring up the past anymore. He doesn't bring up how bad people are. He doesn't keep reminding everybody how horrible they are. He doesn't keep reminding Noah why we've got to do this. It's because everyone's so bad. It's like this is, this is the fact. This is the state of the world. And so it repented God that he made man, and so he came up with a different plan. He came up with a new plan. And from that point on, all of his focus, all of his attention, all of his commitment was on that new plan, which was to start over with Noah and a, and a new earth after the flood. And even after the flood, we see God committing to that with, that, with the covenant of the rainbow. You know, he never again will he flood the world like that. You know, we, we looked into that, and so it's... That's a big part, you know, that's, that's an aspect of repentance we don't think about. We think, well, you did something wrong, you need to repent. And that's true too, okay? But, but, the, but, the, but the, uh, a, a more broad view of it is that it's, it's time to start something new and then you're completely focused and committed to the new start, right? And so that's, that's, that's a part of that process. And the reason we want to start looking at defining repentance this way is because, you know, we in the church, we, we are notorious for focusing on the negative. Uh, we, we think, most people in the church think that what makes them a Christian is that they don't do things. Right? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't go drinking. I don't go sleeping around. You know, I mean, we, we can list off a whole bunch of things that people in the world do and we can say we're Christians. We don't do that. Okay? And so we think what makes us a Christian is that we aren't participating in the, the deeds of the flesh necessarily, okay? And so we say, well, we, we gave up those sinful behaviors, and so now we're Christians. And yes, you need to give up sinful behavior, okay? You can't be living in sin. It doesn't work that way, okay? But, like, why aren't we more focused on what we're doing as a Christian than what we're not doing? You, you get what I'm saying? Like, the focus is, I'm a Christian, so here's a list of things I don't do. And, and I've never met someone that said, I'm a Christian, so here's a list of things I am doing. And, you know, when we see the day that God repented, yeah, there was something he was leaving behind, but that wasn't what got all the attention. Like, the attention was what he was going to do instead of that. And we don't see near enough of that in the church when it comes to repentance. And so the focus is on, for, the, for a Christian, is on the new creation, right? It's walking in a newness of life. It's, it's um, you know, the deeds that are appropriate for repentance, bearing fruit, uh, for repentance, those those things, right? And so, and there's an aspect of repentance that 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 needs to be brought to our attention about those things. And so, um, you know, we talked about how God desires everyone to repent. Uh, we we talked about how um, how there's also this connection with that word in the Old Testament that gets translated into comfort. Uh, had anyone ever heard that before? I, I I mean, when it brought it was brought to my attention, I thought, okay. We've got, like I said, typo or something. But, you know, we, we see the same word that it, it repented God that he made man. We see that in Psalms 23, that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We see Job talking about how his friends were miserable comforters. And it's like, you know, the, the point of Job's friends, like they made him miserable instead of, instead of making him better, right? And if, if repentance means to make you sorry, 
Like, well, they did a good job at that, but they didn't do a good job at bringing him into a better place, right? And then when you're looking at the rod and the staff, it's discipline, it's guidance. Like, it's all those things we talked about, and it's to keep the, the sheep safe and protected, right? And so when you think about the word repentance and how it, it kind of connects in with those ideas, again, the focus isn't I did something wrong and need to repent. It, repentance is a focus on, on what needs to happen. Getting yourself on the right path. That's, that's kind of the idea. And if that's the case, then, then you know, repentance is a whole lot more than I did something wrong and I need to stop doing it. There's a lot of people in the church that need to repent because they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything wrong. They just didn't do anything right. You, you see what I mean? And so there are deeds appropriate to repentance and it's not just that I stopped something. Like you have to, you have to focus and commit to that that newness of life, right? To to that idea. And so, anyway, those are ideas there that that we kind of talked about last week. And so that's the best, that's the quick overview from last week. And so, if you could stretch that and dub that over the whole like lesson from last week, we'd be, yeah, we'd be we'd be set. Um, <sighs> We mentioned last week in Acts 26, 17 through 20. Uh, let's go and read that again. Acts 17. I'm wanting to get into 2 Corinthians tonight, but I, I just want to set this up right. Um, Acts 26. Okay, Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 17. It says, Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also, excuse me, at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And so, deeds appropriate to repentance. We, we looked in Jonah chapter 3 and we saw that God repented of, 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 the, of the judgment that He was going to send on Nineveh, but when did He do that? He saw their deeds, right? And so there's deeds. God is looking for, for, for the fruit of repentance. There, there has to be some evidence uh, that repentance is taking place. And so the fruit of that, the deeds of, of repentance. And, and the idea is if there's no change of behavior, then there's no change of mind. But I think sometimes the only change of behavior we're looking for is, you know, stop living in sin. Stop, those, stop your sinful behavior and... and it, it's got to be more, it's, gotta, it's a bigger picture than that. And so, <clears throat> turn to 2 Corinthians. Let's just go ahead and jump into it because I feel like I'll cause more confusion if we don't. So <laughs> I, we could spend the rest of this class from now till the last day here in December going through what's going on in Corinth. And I would love to do that. Uh, but we, we, you all signed up for a parables class, and we've already side-railed that for two weeks here, so we, we've got to get back into that. But um, 
you know, the letters to, to the church at Corinth are interesting. Um, you know, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians is addressing the congregation regarding their attitude toward those who need to repent. And one of the ideas there is that when repentance is needed, you, you can't ignore it, okay? Um, and, and the Bible in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 calls that arrogant, right? To be arrogant is to ignore, ignore those that need to repent or ignore, ignore that repentance needs to, needs to happen. And, you know, if you're familiar with what's going on, you know, 1 Corinthians is all about all sorts of problems in, in the church, but chapter 5 specifically gets into a situation where you've got um, some relationships that are out of, out of, out of line and, and need to be, you know, you've got people in the church that are living the wrong way, but you also have a congregation that are not dealing with it. And that's part of it that gets overlooked. I mean, it's not just that individual that was in a bad relationship or a relationship that was sinful that needed to repent. The congregation needed to repent because they were allowing those things to happen and not getting involved. And so the Bible calls them arrogant for, for not, for not uh, bringing it to their attention and dealing with it. And so the idea is, you know, that the church has to foster an environment where movement toward the right things happen. And I think that's the right way to think about it. You know, uh, when, you, when you read 1 Corinthians, you, 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 like it's obvious that that letter is not being written to the one individual that is, that is in sin that needs to repent, right? That letter is written to the whole church, and it's obvious that everyone's kind of involved in this, whether they'd like to be or not, right? And so the, the fact that we are a body of Christ, the fact that uh, we are all members of the same body, means that I can't sit here and say that you're... you're your sin or, or your lack of involvement with the Lord and the church doesn't, doesn't affect me, right? I can't sit back and say, well, that's between you and God and it's none of my business. Like, we don't have the luxury of that in the body of Christ. We have to be living our lives where, we, well, we are affected by one another, but we have to be close enough to one another that we can actually be accountable. And what I mean by that is, is it's not so much that I need to make sure that I'm calling Chris out for things that Chris does that's wrong, okay? It means that I need to live my life to where Chris would notice things that are offline in my life and I would notice things that are offline in Chris's life and we can talk about that and, and, and our relationship is fostering an environment that pushes both of us to a better place. And if every Christian had that kind of relationship, think about the accountability that that involves. Have you ever seen a congregation where someone addresses somebody's uh, life in some sense that ne there were something needs to be needs to be fixed and instead of of that moving into a better place it just causes all sorts of problems okay i'm not saying that that person shouldn't have brought it up i'm what i'm saying is that if if we lived our lives where it wasn't just my job to point out your insufficiencies but that i was actually close enough to you and you were close enough to me that we lived our lives more than just see a sunday and see a tuesday night but actually shared our lives with one another then we would be i have to be living my life to where i'm accountable to you also right where where you and, and that can't happen if i'm living my life in seclusion from you and so if if that fellowship existed where our relationships with one another, again, fostered an environment that promoted movement toward the right things, then those things would happen more smoothly than they often do. And so 
one of the things I get out of 1 Corinthians is that it's not just those individuals that are at fault, but it's the congregation for having an environment in that congregation that didn't push those people to move in the right direction. And so Paul is not just talking about the relationship between the the man and his, what is it, his father's wife or father's, yeah, that's what it is. So, um, but he's also, he's addressing the whole church in that, in that letter. And so what's interesting though is as we get through 1 Corinthians, we figure out that they, you know, in 2 Corinthians that, you know, it seems like their efforts seem to work. Okay, and you know, when we get into... Um, chapter 2, for example, of 2 Corinthians, we're dealing with how to restore that individual back after they've repented. And, and the church seems to have done a good job of bringing things in the right place. In verse 11, though, we're reminded so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of these schemes. And so we need to make sure that in the process of, of understanding repentance and, and trying to encourage repentance in our lives and around us, we need to be careful not to give Satan an advantage in these things. In other words, don't be the reason that people stay where they are rather than moves to where they need to be. Okay, that, that might be a good way to put that. Okay, so, so anyway, we move off to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And this is the best way that I can try to sum this stuff up without killing all our time with it. Um, but it, it's worth looking back over 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in light of this is not just an individual that seems to be needing to get things in order, but the whole church seems to be held at some responsibility for why these things have happened and not have been addressed yet. Okay, And so, group effort there with repentance. Um, <clears throat> chapter 7, okay, 2 Corinthians, start here in verse 9. It says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Okay. Godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. Repentance then produces what? It ought to lead to salvation, right? That's the idea. Godly sorrow will produce repentance. Repentance should lead us to salvation, okay? Um, worldly sorrow produces what? Death, okay? So here's, here's a good example, right? You can look at Judas and Peter, okay? Good example of a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. Judas was sorry about what he'd done. Anyone disagree with that? Okay, Judas was sorry about what he'd done. Here's why he was sorry about it. It had unintended consequences. That's why he was sorry. He didn't realize the scope of what his actions would lead to. Okay, that's not the same as being sorry for what you actually done. That's being sorry for how it turned out. Does that, does that make It's like the kid that's sorry he got caught. He's not sorry about what he did. He's sorry about what it turned into now. Now he's punished, right? Now he got caught. Now people are upset with him, okay? So Judas, uh, you know, he's not sorry about what he did. He's sorry how it turned out. And, you know, of course, what does he do 
with that money, you know, once he sees what's going on and they've, they've kind of turned Jesus in and he's going through the trial, what, what is, does anyone remember, where does Judas go? He goes to the priest, where are the priests at? In the temple, okay? Now, I could be wrong on this, this is the, but, you know, he, it, it appears from me, from what the Bible says there, that he goes into the temple while the priests are serving and he throws the money down, okay? Judas is not allowed to be there. We went through the tabernacle class. He's not allowed to be there. Judas, do you think he knows that? Everybody knew that. Do you think that was enforced? Or do you think that you could casually walk into the temple while the priests were serving if you weren't a priest or a Levite? Yeah, they had temple guards there. Judas should have been killed for walking in there. You ever heard of suicide by police? Okay, I think that's what Judas was trying for. Okay, because um, right after that, he goes out and buys the field and hangs himself, that whole ordeal. Um, Peter, though, on the other hand, denied Christ there at the trial, and he is also sorrowful. Okay, he is made, made remorseful about what he'd done there. But there's no direct consequences, and so Peter's sorrow for denying Christ seems to be genuine. And we see, you know, does his behavior change? Yeah, and, and so, you know, we see a, a genuine repentance there in Peter, but with Judas, he was sorry, but more about the consequences of his actions, yet not necessarily what he actually did, you see. And so, the point is, you know, look, look here, it says that, the um, verse 10, the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, okay? What do you think it means to have a repentance without regret? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people, I've met people that when they talk about their old life, like it's, they're, they're longing for it. You know what I mean? They, they miss the things that they used to do. Like they, you know, you can tell they've not actually, you know, maybe they're not doing it, but their heart's not turned. It's like Israel, you know, they, they got out of Egypt real quick, but it took, I mean, how long did it take to get Egypt out of Israel? Okay, different story altogether. You know what I mean? And so a lot of people are like, are like Israel. They, maybe they got out of Egypt, but we didn't get all the world out of them yet. And so when they look at their past life, they're remorseful about it and even resentful sometimes. Like, you know, look, you know, I can't have fun and I can't do those things. I, you know, so, and so their you know, genuine repentance produces a repentance without regret. You know, I don't long for those days, right? I ran from that stuff. I, I was seeking refuge in Christ from those things. I don't want to go back to that. And so that's, that's an important thing. So you think about your mindset. You know, the, what do you think about? Um, you know, you think about, you know, the, the standards that people have, you know, in Christ and the purpose and those sorts of things. And so, you know, you, you don't want to go back to those things. And so, but, so a repentance without regret. And then what we're going to get into here is what exactly is repentance and, and how is it defined and so if we go into verse 11 this is where things start getting getting uh, well we can start getting specific he mentions for behold what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you what vindication of yourselves what indignation what fear what longing what zeal what avenging of wrong and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter so, two things. One, 
It's so interesting. I've, I've, I've never seemed to lack being able to find people who would study about the fact that sorrow brings you to repentance. But almost never have I heard a study that talks about what does repentance bring. You know, and, and so we, we look that, well, sorrow leads to repentance. You know, repentance, yeah, it leads to eternal life. It, it leads to a life without regret if it's genuine. But here we get a very specific breakdown of what repentance should look like in somebody's life. And again, these things here, it goes way beyond just, I quit doing the thing that's bad. Like, it's, it's a lot more intense than that. Uh, it's a complete change in their behavior, in their mindset. It, it, it reaches all the way down into their character. And so it's, it's a genuine change. And so we're going to go through these words here and talk about what these things would look like. And as I do that, I want to just say the tricky part about this kind of a study is that our various translations will put these lists of words in different orders sometimes. And so, uh, or likely we'll just use different words altogether. And so some words are, are close enough that they can, be, they can seem almost interchangeable. And so anyway, I, I, mean, I use the New American Standard. Uh, we're going to follow through the list here. I'll kind of ask kind of what words that you have as we go through here. But the first one that I have, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. And so you guys see the equation, right? I mean, if godly sorrow produces repentance, and in the next verse he says, godly sorrow produces earnestness in you, obviously what we're looking at in verse 11 is, is different ways to see repentance in our life, right? These, this is a more detailed and specific and accurate view. It's like, you know, looking at repentance under a microscope. We can, we can see a bigger detail here. So, I have earnestness. Does anyone have a different word there for the first one? Everybody's got earnestness? Fair enough. All right, well that's word, how many of you have used that word in the last week? <laughs> Just in casual conversation. Okay, so that's another problem we're going to run into. Like, we don't talk like this, okay? And so these aren't words that we often use very often at all. When would we use the word earnest? You have a friend named Ernest? Ernest goes to church. Missed opportunity. I would have watched that. Yeah. Someone else say something? Ernest T. That's true. That's the name. All right. Other than a name. <laughs> okay. What about when you're like buying a house or something? Ernest money. What does Ernest money mean? It's a, it's a guarantee. It's, it's uh, Jeremy, do you have something else? Diligence. Okay, your translation says diligence. Okay, earnestness, diligence. Now, diligence is a word we would use more often uh, today. But just so the word earnestness or, or the Greek word that gets translated diligence or earnestness here, this has everything. It, what, what, it, it, it could be translated diligence or earnestness, but it talks about it. It's a seriousness of purpose. And I think that's, that's the, probably the best way for us to define that. It's a seriousness of purpose. Okay, and so... A seriousness of purpose, this is all about sincerity and intensity. It's those two things, right? It's about being upfront and honest and sincere, but there's also a level of intensity that comes with that. And so earnestness, diligence, those two words kind of get those things together. The word also depicts a forward motion, okay? And so diligence... Um, you know, earnestness, these two words, these, these, you know, the Greek word, it, it's a continual action and it's progressively forward. 
right? And so, for example, you know, when we look at, we see the, we see the same idea in Acts chapter 2, that the, uh, those that were baptized that day, what did they do? Oh, we bring this up all the time, guys. Okay, continually devoted. That same idea is in those words there. It's, this, it's, it's not just that they did it. It's a continual progress, you know. And so they, they didn't just, just, oh, well, yeah, we had prayer and we, we broke bread and, you know, we, we heard some of the, you know, they continued to devote themselves to these things and that intensity grew and grew and grew. Now, do we see that today in most Christians? What do we usually see? Nothing. Chris, Chris is real optimistic tonight. Uh, <laughs> he's like, we don't see, we don't see a thing. Uh, we see a lot of times people become a Christian, and then like you know we start talking about. Remember how excited you were when you were a Christian? What happened, right? And so does the intensity increase or decrease? A lot of times, a lot of times it decreases. A lot of times people you know come out of the water and man they're just fired up. They're ready to do something for the Lord, and then it's you know. Some, I don't know if we're all volunteer firefighters, we just turn the hose on them and calm them down. And, you know, it's just like, what happened? And, and people, people's intensity, it gets less and less and less. It shouldn't be that way, right? Scripturally, it shouldn't be that way. It should be getting more and more and more, right? It should go the other direction. And so th- that's what this word has to do. Let's turn to a couple places here. We'll see the same word being used. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 11. If you're there, say got it. Romans 12, 11. See, this isn't in your notes, and so you're all taking as long as I am now. <laughs> Romans 12, verse 11. says, Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not lagging behind in diligence. That phrase... Or those, those words make up the same idea of earnestness. Not lagging behind in diligence. Okay? And so that's, that's a, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 okay? Peter chapter 1. Okay? Alright, we're going to look at verse 5. That's not correct. Maybe it's Second Peter. Maybe I wrote it down wrong. Hold on. Let me look. Let me look. <laughs> yep, Second Peter chapter 1. Sorry about that. Alright, verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence... In your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And, you know, he goes on. Your knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. What does it mean to apply all diligence to those things? Hey, you've got to put effort in it. Right? You've got you to practice these things. You have to be thinking about these things. You have to be intentional. These are not characteristics that are just going to rub off on you because you became a Christian. Like This is part of the transformation of our character and that inner man. And so we have to, we have to participate in this. And the Bible says that it is required that we apply all diligence to it. And so that's the same idea as this earnestness. There's, there's a, uh, a seriousness and an intensity to it. Uh, Jude, uh, verse, uh, well, there's only one chapter, but Jude, verse 3, same words used here. 
It says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you and appeal that you contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all handed down to the saints. He says that he made every effort. Right? Not just, well, I tried, I tried, you know, uh, I, made, I made an attempt Okay, you know, I can say that I, I made some effort. I mean, he made every effort. And so uh, what I'm trying to get us to see is that part of repentance is this earnestness, this diligence, this, this intensity and seriousness about your Christian life. And, you know, we can see this all throughout the text. It's not just in 2 Corinthians, but this word is summed up with a seriousness or a sincere uh, intensity to your Christian life. And, you know... Well, let's think about this. Let's go back to the problem at Corinth. In Corinth, they've got this, this issue taking place in the congregation. And we're told in chapter 5, uh, let, let's go back over there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because we didn't actually read any of it. Because um, 2 Corinthians is the response to how they, how they handled this situation that was brought to their attention in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Starting there in verse 1, he says, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, uh, so that you, uh, the one who had done this deed, would be removed from your midst. Okay, and so, you know, the idea is, you know, what's, how much earnestness is there when Paul writes that letter? I mean, you, you see, he's not addressing the one in sin. Right? He's addressing the church here and saying you all have done something wrong here by letting this happen and that you've not gotten involved with it. You, you know, there's, so they were seriously lacking in seriousness and intensity of, of, for their Christian life and for the concern of that individual. And so who needed to repent? Now, it seems like everyone needed to, especially when you consider that repentance looks like this earnestness, this diligence, this seriousness of intensity. And so... You know, this congregation needed to repent for not dealing with it, but so did the individual who needed to move away from it. And so now, he's saying in 2 Corinthians, he sees that their repentance has produced a great earnestness in their lives. What that means, their efforts weren't half-hearted. Okay? They understood the stakes. They understood how important this was. And so seriousness... And intensity. And so the question is if we are repented people, are we earnest? Are we open? Are we honest? Are we serious? Are we sincere? Right? Where's the intensity in the Christian life? Here's the thing a lot of people can be sincere, okay, but you know, sincere without intensity is not earnestness. You also can see people who can be very intense but they aren't very sincere. Again, that's not earnestness. Earnestness is an honest, sincere approach and, and a seriousness to it with the intensity. And so, you know, without, without the seriousness, all we have are good intentions. Okay? A lot of people in the church who know what they should do, uh, like to talk about how they should do it, but aren't making the effort toward it. It's not helpful, right? Because there's no movement. And so we need movement in the church, movement in the body. And so if we're serious, there has to be some intensity. And those two things together create the momentum. And so what God's trying to do here is give us a crystal clear picture so that we can identify repentance in ourselves 
And the first thing on this list is, am I sincere? Am I intense? Like, how serious am I about the Christian life? Okay, so what's the evidence that we're serious? That there's intensity? Action? Okay. Well, part of that, those deeds, is this earnestness, right? That should be... So if you've got, a, you've got someone in the church that's, you know, well, they show up whenever they feel like it, and they don't ever really get involved with anything, they're not really participating in anything, they're just kind of filling the pew, and then they repent, what should you expect to see differently? I mean, you should expect to see somebody involved, right? There should be seriousness about their Christian life now. Right, and so that's that's what we're looking for. And when you think that that's part of repentance, like we've got a lot of a lot of people in the church that need to repent, not because they've got all this horrible sin in their life and immorality and unrighteousness, but because there's a lack of seriousness, intensity about about Jesus and about the Word of God and about the kingdom and the work that we're supposed to be involved with. And so that's a big part of it. Am I earnest? Am I sincere? Um, all right, let's go back to Second Corinthians chapter seven. Let's see what the next one is here. Okay, it says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. Okay, does anyone have something different than vindication? Indignation, okay. Clearing of yourselves, okay. Yeah, so this, this uh, what the New American Standard says is the vindication of yourself. This is about having an eagerness to clear yourself of blame. Okay, and so this is about making sure that you make things right. Okay, so let's just say that you, you stole something. As a repentant individual, you can't just say, sorry, I stole it. What else do you have to do? Yeah, something like Zacchaeus would have done, right? You need to give it back or restore what's been broken or what's been taken. You see what I mean? So part of, part of, part of, uh, of repentance is the restoration of what's been, what's been broken or undone, you see? And so this vindication of yourself, you know, being a Christian, it's not always... What have you done about the things that you've done wrong? You see, it's, it's not just being able to say, well, I don't do that anymore, okay? But, you know, I, have you ever met someone that doesn't want to... I've, I've seen this a lot. I, I know a guy that used to skip church all the time to go fishing, okay? And then now he knows better, but he sees other people doing it, and he says, well, I can't say anything because I used to do the same. Okay? Now, he knows it's wrong. He's not giving them a pass. He just thinks he's not the right person to say something to him. I disagree. I think he's exactly the right person to say something, right? Because he's been there and he can say, hey, I get it. It's a beautiful day. You know, there's water. It's always a good time to get in the water when there's water. I know, I know, <laughs> right? But I, I love to fish. I get, I get it. <laughs> I mean, if we, we could just bring the assembly out on the water, I'd be thrilled. Um, but... Uh, but anyway, I think the guy that's, that's done that is in a better place to sit down and say, hey, I've been there too, and I've got to tell you, it's, it's not worth it. It's absolutely not worth it, you know. And so sometimes, you know, I, to me, that's the vindication of, 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 of what I've done wrong, you know, is that I, 
am serious about trying to make that right, not just in my life, but to help other people not make that same mistake too. And so when I see people doing the things that, that I've done that weren't the way that they should have been done, I'm quick to say, hey, I was stupid too. Um, <laughs> let me explain how we could do this differently, you know, and so, uh, but I've been there, you know, and I know, and, and I've had a lot of, a lot of godly men and, and that, that have also been there that have sat me down and said those same things before. Hey, you know, I've been ignorant too. So let, let me tell you, uh, let me share some wisdom with you. And so the vindication of yourself is about fixing the things that were done right and trying to make those things, those things, uh, better. Uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. There's another side of vindicating yourself or clearing, clearing your name that, that, um, that I think we need to add on this list a little bit. Um, it goes under the same, same, same idea, but Matthew chapter 18, we, we hear this all the time. This is the text about uh, church discipline here, and it tells us in verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Okay, if your translation says if your brother sins against you, you can cross out against you. It's not there in the Greek. It's not there in the original text. And so I've heard a lot of people make the excuse, well, they're sinning, but not against me, so I have no place to... That's not what it says. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Okay? And so, if you see a problem in your brother or your sister in Christ, the Bible says go to them. Okay? Well, on the same page on that. Okay, go to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> 23 and 24, if you're there, say got it. All right. 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Okay. What's, how's, how's this scenario work? Who's got a problem with who? Yeah, if I realize that you have a problem with me in this one, in Matthew 18, it's if I recognize a problem in somebody else. But here, specifically, if, if, I'm, if I'm recognizing that I have a brother that has a problem with me. And so in Matthew 18, okay, you and your brother in Christ, who's, who's walking toward who? You're walking toward him, right? Because you recognize there's something in his life that needs to be addressed there. Okay, in Matthew 5, you and your brother, who's walking toward who? You are also walking toward your brother because you recognize that there may be something wrong with your life. <laughs> My point is, in both scenarios, if we're all Christians, which direction are we walking? We are constantly walking toward each other in this scenario. Okay, because the idea is to go out of your way to keep yourself in the clear. That's the idea, right? People say all the time, you know, and like, you, you don't have to spend five seconds in the world trying to tell someone about Jesus before you recognize everybody has had a bad church experience and everybody's going to use that as their excuse why they don't want anything to do with it. 
Okay? And so everyone always says, well, you know, it's all those people that say they're Christians but don't act like Christians that give Christians a bad name. And you know, what is the best way to combat that? Yeah, don't act like the world. Be a Christian that doesn't act like the rest of the world. If that means that you have to go out of your way to keep your name clear, go out of your way to keep your name clear. You know, I always tell people, like when I, when I went to Bible college there, I drove from northern Kentucky to, let's see, what was it? It was, it was almost three hours, two and a half, two, four, two hours, 45 minute drive, one way, okay, and then back. And, then, uh, and so I'd be leaving early in the morning, and halfway point was somewhere over there around, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Aberdeen, Ohio. Okay, so that was about my halfway point. There was a place, there was a gas station. I'd swing in there to get coffee because I needed a refill. But right next to the gas station was a liquor store that said on the sign, wine, spirits, liquor, coffee. Now, I could have went in there and got my coffee. They were open. I don't, maybe it was good coffee. I don't know. But I chose not to go there to get my coffee every morning. Why? Yeah, to keep myself in the... Cl- I don't want anyone thinking, what's this kid doing going into the liquor store, you know? Uh, and so I'd stay out of there. And, and again, I could walk in there, buy a cup of coffee and walk out. I've done nothing wrong, right? I've done nothing wrong. But to keep myself in the clear, I wouldn't go somewhere where someone could even say, man, I don't want to be a Christian because I saw some Christian I know doing this the other day. You see what I mean? And so this vindication of yourselves is going out of your way to keep your name in the clear, right? Going out of your way to keep the image of Christ pure, those sorts of things. And so that's, that's the idea. You know, that, again, we need to be serious about those things. Uh, let's go, uh, well, let's, let's take a break. Let's do that. Let's take a break. We'll hit the next one next. All right, let's uh, back to 2 Corinthians there. Um, Chapter 7. We're going to pick up there where we left off. So, uh, verse 11. What, behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. And the next one is what indignation. Okay, indignation. Um, here's the idea. Are you upset with the immorality that exists in our world today? Are you upset with the falsehoods being proclaimed in our churches? Are you upset with the language our children are learning to use? The general lack of responsibility and uh, respect. And See, indignation talks about holy anger. That's what that is, holy anger. And, um, you know, we should hate sin. God hates sin. I mean... We act like hate is the opposite of, of love. You know, and, and if you ask almost anybody, that's what they would tell you, that the opposite of love is hate. That's not true. You know, God hates plenty of things throughout the Scripture. He hates things that, that, that are dangerous to us, uh, hates things that, that are harmful to us, sin, uh, for example. Um, you know, I love my family. Uh, if you were to break into my house at night, you would not be greeted with love. Um, you understand? <laughs> so I hate the things that would cause them harm or threaten them. Um, you, you see what I mean? So, you know, if you love something, you hate the things that are, 
that are threatening to that or, or danger pose a danger to that. And so love and hate go together in that sense. I mean, they really, they really are part of the same equation. Um, you know, it's, it's just about what do you love? Uh, that's, that's really the question. Uh, and so in that sense, hate's not the opposite of love. A Christian should hate things that oppose God and are standing in opposition to the truth and are becoming roadblocks to people's salvation. Um, you know, those, I, I hate false teaching. It sends people to hell. It leaves people stuck in their sins. And many people who would desire God get pulled away from that. More than anything else. I mean, you could name any other sinful thing in the world and we could sit here and talk about how dangerous those things are. Uh, you know, we can talk about alcohol and drugs and abortion and all that other thing, but nothing causes more spiritual damage in this world than false teaching does. You've got to understand that. I had a friend that used to be real chummy with the denominational preachers. Okay? Um, you know, he's a Church of Christ guy but he didn't have any problem getting along with the Baptist preacher down the street or the Methodist preacher across town and would do things with them all the time. That changed. It didn't change for a long time, but it finally did change when that man's grandmother was in the hospital and she ended up deciding she didn't need to do anything more than what she'd already done because the Methodist preacher told her she was okay, despite him sitting down with her trying to share with her what the Bible said. He walked out of that room. I was there and he tells me, I hate I hate false teaching so much. He's like, I never realized the damage. But that's what it took. Someone he loved getting caught in the crosshairs to realize these aren't things to play with. Dangerous. They're absolutely dangerous. We can sit there and act like, well, it's, at least it's better than... Some. No, it's not. It's not better than the other... Th it's, it's worse than any other thing that your kids can get involved with. It's worse than anything else your, your loved ones can get involved with because it'll give them the security and even the hope of eternity, but it will not deliver. And it will leave their life in sin and, away, and apart from Jesus Christ. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And so, repented people hate sin. And they hate the things that are going to pull people away. And they hate the things that pulled them away. You, you see what I mean? A repented person has a holy anger toward those things. Okay? Now, how many people in the church are indifferent too many. Too many. What's lacking in their life is that seriousness that we talked about, that earnestness, that intensity. And what's missing in their repentance is this indignation. And, you know, if somebody does not have that holy anger toward the things that are sinful, it's because they haven't grasped the danger of it yet. I'm fully convinced of that. And so we should be angry about those things. Does that mean we, we participate in them? Fellowship in them? See, we need to acknowledge how far off course this world is and how far off course many of our religious establishments are. And we need to take very serious steps about getting ourselves off those paths and keeping ourselves on God's path and keeping as many people as we can on that path as well. We cannot be indifferent to sin. Genuine repentance is going to produce a holy anger toward things that are spiritually destructive. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 9. I'm 100% sure that we've, we've went through this, this here in Ezekiel 9 um, before, uh, but it's, it's, uh, 
it's the best place I know to talk about what we're dealing with with this holy anger, this uh, anger toward toward immorality and sin and uh, corruption in the church. <clears throat> Ezekiel is getting an image of judgment. Okay, and, and uh, let's start here in verse 4. It says, The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city. Now what city do you think we're talking about? Jerusalem. Who lives in Jerusalem? Jewish people, which these are God's people, right? And so when we, when we talk about Israel, the comparison is not America. We understand that? Okay. What is the comparison today? It's the church, okay? So it's, you know, I, again, so many times I hear people going back in the Old Testament and looking at Israel and saying, boy, you know, and America needs to get, America's not Israel, okay? We are not a Christian nation. We are a nation that, that was founded on biblical Christian principles. Uh, nations don't become Christians, people do, you see? And so um, we are the type of Israel, right? And so here God was talking to His people that were in a covenant with Him, so this would be relatable to us, to, to the church. And so the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Now, what abominations do you suppose might be being committed in the midst of Jerusalem? Mainly idolatry. I mean, there's other things too, but Israel's problems always came back to worship uh, and, and idolatry. And so, um, again, their form of idolatry was physical because their system of worship was physical. Our system of worship is spiritual today. And so our form of idolatry is also spiritual in nature, right? And so the devil, you know, likes to imitate. And so... Um, God sets up spiritual or physical temple, physical worship structure. Devil sets up imitations of that. The Lord sets up a spiritual worship structure for us today, and the devil has set up imitation of that. And so for us, to sigh and to moan over the abominations being committed even among the church, right? Um, just think about that. Think about what that entails and what that might be. Verse 5 but to the others, he said to my hearing, now who would be the others? The, the ones that aren't sighing and groaning over it. Okay, so, so considering all the abominations that are taking place among God's people, he says put a mark on the ones that sigh and groan, right? That, that, are, that are upset and angry about it. Okay? Now, that's, that, that is an internal thing. It doesn't mean that they've started a rebellion or they've st you know, it doesn't mean that they have necessarily even done anything about it, but at least they're at a point where spiritually it concerns them and it bothers them that God's system is being compromised, that God's people have been corrupted, that truth is not, not prevalent, uh, that they are you know, dragging falsehoods through the, through the streets like it upsets them. In, in the end, you know, it spiritually, it, 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 they're angry about these things. But to the others who aren't, right, those who would be indifferent, he says, go through the city after him and strike, and do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, women. Do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. 
So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Okay, where does judgment begin? In the household of God. Okay, and so judgment in this vision began in the sanctuary with the elders. And those who did not have the mark, which those who weren't, did not have a holy anger about the things that were being done, were utterly destroyed. You see? And so repented people should have an indignation about those things that are spiritually harmful. All right, let's go back to 2 Corinthians here. I ought to mark it instead of trying to find it each time. Be smart. Yeah. I've got three of them in mine. And I only need one here. All right. (laughs) Okay, so the next we've got uh, what indignation, what fear. What fear. That's what I have in my translation there. What fear. Okay. Um, here's the thing about fear. It's, it's, it's not about whether you have fear. It's about what you fear. Okay. Christian or repented Christian ought to have an appropriate fear. And so, um, you know, we can talk about reverence and awe. But, you know, big part of that is learning to see how big God is and how little we are. You know, uh, genuine repentance will produce the right sort of fear in our lives. And, you know, again, we're talking about respect. We're talking about honor. Uh, we're talking about reverence. You know, th- those sorts of things. But turn to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28, the Bible says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Excuse me. I had a friend of mine brought this. I thought this was this was a good way to look at this. Um, he had a uh, he had a, he's a preacher and he had a, a I think a, a, a niece scared to death of dogs. Okay, so you know you've met kids like that, I'm sure. Okay, and when kids are scared of dogs but aren't around livestock or animals or dogs. Okay, they meet a dog, and what do they do? Yeah, and what does the dog do? Yeah, dumbest thing to do. Okay, if you're around a dog that you don't want to be around is to run. Dog's going to chase you down, okay? And so if you are around a dog or an animal that you're leery of, right, it is much better, wiser to quietly approach, draw near, (laughs) you know what I mean? Let it smell you. You know, that sort of a thing. And then slowly back away if you need to. Okay? With God, if we have a proper respect, reverence, fear of God, it should lead us to draw near. Right? Not run. Okay? And if you run, you're not going to get away from Him anyway, is the idea, you know. Uh, but I thought that was an interesting perspective on that, that, that idea of fearing God. Um, here's the deal. Proof of repentance is who are you afraid of? Okay, you afraid of God or are you afraid of man? Are you afraid of God or are you afraid of your, what's going to happen to your reputation? Are you afraid of God or are you afraid of what's going to happen with your job? Are you afraid of God or are you afraid of what your family's going to think? Are you afraid of God or you, you get where we're going with this? Okay, a lot of people make their decisions because they're afraid of what's going to happen if they don't. And, you know, we treat God, people, well, you know, I believe in a God of love. They, they, they've created an idol out of that tolerance, and that's what they're worshiping. 
They're not actually worshiping the God of the Bible. And so the idea is that if you worship a God of love and your idea of love is tolerance, then God will tolerate you doing anything that you want to do. And, and so why wouldn't you put, just continually not give God what he wants when push comes to shove? And so that's, that's the situation a lot of people end up in. But the reality is God and, you know, the people in your life will at some point be in conflict over the same part of you. Okay, and whether that's your schedule, whether that's your um, resources, whether that's your finances, whether that's your family, whether that's just your commitment, whether that's your, your mind, uh, you know, you are going to find yourself in conflict with friends, neighbors, family, co-workers, boss, you know, all of those things all at once. And then what's going to determine who are you going to serve in that moment comes down to who you fear. And the proper... Um, solution for fear of man is a better fear of God that's how you deal with that right you know if, if you're worried about well I know people when COVID came out and, and you know and, and, and Governor Bashir was telling everybody in Kentucky not to meet you know church I know a lot of churches were doing a lot of different things but I know one congregation decided well they'll just meet in the parking lot and, you know, and then that way they're at least showing up and, and that sort of a thing. And there were people that left the church because were, they were not being obedient to the governor. Okay? Now, I, you know, who are we afraid of? You see? Um, we've talked a lot about what happens when your boss wants you to work on Sunday. You know, you've got one shot at making that right. Okay? Because you compromise one time and then they'll keep asking you to come in and work on Sundays. You know what I mean? That's going to keep happening over and over and over again. You need to stand your ground, be respectful about it. And over and over again, you're going to have, you're going to find out people will respect and, 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 and give you options to work around those things, you see. But most people are so afraid of what their employer might think that they won't even have the conversation. I've never met someone to have the conversation and get shut down completely. Everybody that I've, I've met that's a Christian that has went in with respect and said, hey, here's the deal. I want to work. I, I want to work hard for you. I want to do anything I can to get around this. But I, I have a commitment to, to the Lord's Church on Sunday morning. What can we do? I've never had somebody that I've met, and I, that doesn't mean it hasn't happened, who's had that conversation with an employer, and the employer just said, you're fired. It's ne- I, I've never seen it. Okay, And so someone may prove me wrong one day, but so far... I've not seen that. I've seen every, everybody I know that's done that. It's always worked out where they can be in the, in the assembly and God blesses that decision and that commitment. You see, proper fear of God is the remedy for a fear of man. Okay, and so, but I don't think we always, it always, it always translates as a fear of people um, when we're in the moment. You know, when we feel like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Okay. Um, oh, for sure. Sure, yeah, yeah. You, you, you quote it for us, or you want us to turn there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good, very good, yeah, yeah. So again, yeah, who, who are you going to fear? You know, who are you going to fear? And so it's a respectful fear, um, but, you know, again, proof of repentance is what are you afraid of? Let's go to John chapter 12 real quick. John chapter 12. You know, you can make the argument. I love going through the Gospel um, of John because John, um, well, again, he writes very, very simple statements about very complicated things, and I, I really like that. I like, 
that he's got a way of boiling these things down into these simple statements that you can just think about for a long, long time. Um, and so I, I enjoy that. But John also seems to be pointing out so many facts about the religious leaders as you go through. And so uh, we're, we're, we're going to end in John chapter 12 in a minute. But I just, you know, you've got to remember that the, the same crowd that once Jesus crucified, we can't give them any leeway. You know what I mean? The, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, um, they absolutely 100% knew who Jesus is. And, you know, you can go all the way back to the, the, the Magi searching for Jesus. Where do they go? They went to the temple, right? And in the temple, where, what, they, were, they were given the scripture about where Jesus would be. And so they went and followed. Why wasn't anyone else there? Why, why didn't the people in the temple even care? You see, but, but they knew. They knew what the scripture said, right? You get into John chapter 3 and Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, said, we know that you come from God. They witnessed the things Jesus did. Who do you think the we is in that statement? It's got to be the Pharisees, the religious leaders, right? And so, you know, you get into John chapter 10, and um, I love this account with Lazarus. There's, there's a, just a big picture here with what happens with Lazarus. And it's after this is over, okay, the last thing that happens, um, look at verse 45 and 46. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. So that's a good thing, right? So everyone sees what Jesus does, raising Lazarus from the dead. You hear people say this all the time. Well, someone came back from the dead, I'd believe it. Okay, well, someone did come back from the dead right here. And these people did believe it, right? And so immediately, look what they do. Verse, verse uh, 46, John chapter 11. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, I don't think they were going to tattle. Okay, I think, listen, if I, if I was sitting in church every Sunday and I was told a lie every single week, which is what they were being told, this Jesus, he's, he's nothing special. He's not the fulfillment of Scripture. He's not even, he's just the son of a carpenter. Where's his education? What school did he go to? I mean, you guys can't be impressed. I mean, this is all these guys are hearing. And then all of a sudden they see Jesus raise someone from the dead. Like, there's no mistake about it. So they go to, I think they go to say, hey, you all were probably wrong about this guy. We witnessed this happening. Okay? And so in verse 12, or I'm sorry, verse 47, it says, therefore, therefore why? Because they came to tell, tell them what, what Jesus had done, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, they're not concerned with whether Jesus is the legitimate Son of God or not. They're only concerned with their place and their, their power, their authority, their position. And they know that if Jesus continues, they don't have those things. Right? And so they convene a council. They begin plotting to, 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 to kill him. Um, they try to plot to kill Lazarus next. It's really wild. But then chapter chapter 12 there in John, it says um, down in verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Okay? Look, every preacher, every Sunday school teacher has 
at some point in their life got to make the decision, am I here to please the Lord or am I here to please people? Okay? And people will vote on you. And I'm not talking about secret ballots and things like I'm just saying, you know, people will, they'll, they'll vote on you by whether they want to decide to show up next week or not. You know, they'll, they'll vote on you by whether they're going to put money in the offering plate or not. You know what I mean? Like those are all things that, that come into play with whether you, you know, their way of telling you that you're doing a good job or they don't like what you're doing. And so at some point, everybody that stands up at a pulpit has to decide, who am I here for? Right? Am I here to preach the Word of God and to serve the Lord? Am I His evangelist or am I their evangelist? You know, and they've got to decide who they're there to serve. And so it's not always the world and, or your boss or, or those, those worldly friends. That, it's not just them that you have to fear. A lot of times it's the pressure even among the religious crowd to stand on the truth. They knew what the truth was. But when push come to shove, they wouldn't say anything about the truth, right? Confess in it because they wanted the approval of men more than they wanted the approval of God. And don't think for a second that that still doesn't happen all the time, even in our brotherhood. What do we have to do to get the approval of men as opposed to the approval of God? Okay? And so a proper fear of God is proof of a repented life. All right, back to 2 Corinthians. What earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing. Longing. Okay? Um, That's interesting. You know, because to me, that feels a lot like earnestness, that seriousness, that intensity. Okay? But this is the longing. Right? Matthew chapter 5. Let's turn over there real quick. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they shall be satisfied. You know, it's... How do you, because again, we're talking, let's not forget the context. This was written to the church at Corinth. The church was in a situation where they needed to, 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 to repent and to foster an environment that produced movement toward the right things. And when those things happen, Paul's saying, these things are now evident. And so on this side of this letter, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, how do we, how do we promote this in our congregations? Like we need to see this kind of repentance among our, our congregations. We need to see seriousness and intensity about the things of God. That, that needs to happen in our churches, right? We need, we need to see, um, you know, the, the, I've already forgotten the list here. We, we need to see uh, the, the, that vindication of yourselves. People that take it seriously uh, to do the things that we need to do and to stay away from the things that we need to stay away from. Uh, we, need to, we need to see... Um, you know, we need to see this indignation, this, this, this holy anger toward things that are oppose God, these, these strongholds that are set up against the knowledge of truth, those things that are being toted around, uh, the compromises in the church. We need, to, we need to stand opposed to those and be angry about those things. We need to have a proper fear of God in our lives where God absolutely comes first before everybody. And then longing, like how do we, 
How do we get there? That's, that's an interesting thing because that's always where the rubber hits the road. We can sit here tonight and identify these terms and say this is what repentance looks like, but how do you generate earnestness and seriousness? Like how do you, how do you push you know, that, that longing? And How do you take someone that doesn't long for it and make them long for it? You know what I mean? And so that's, that's where things get difficult. You know, now the avenging of wrong, the holy anger, I think all that takes is a proper value of the danger of those things and then your, your, your thoughts would shift on that. But how do, you, how do you get someone to long for something they don't, they don't long for? And that's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, if someone doesn't thirst for righteousness and hunger for it, you know, um, that's hard to just produce in a people, Okay. And so, now I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say I've got the solution, but I will say this. Um, have you ever heard about people working up an appetite? How do you do that? You work, okay? You work up an appetite, okay? I've never been hungrier in my life than when I've worked hard all day, you know what I mean? And you're looking at me, he's like, I don't know if this guy's worked a lot. But he looks like the guy that can appreciate a good meal. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but yeah, you can, work up a, you can work up an appetite. And it might be, it might be that if, if we're not seeing a lot of that, a lot of people hunger and thirsting for these things in the church, it might be because we're, we're not working. Right? We have congregations full of people who aren't working up a spiritual appetite. And so how would you work up a spiritual appetite? Yeah, uh, you know, having spiritual conversations with people, um, talking to people you work with, friends and neighbors, just having conversations that are directed back to the Word of God. And, you know, it, and, it, and it, it'll, it'll frustrate you to no end, too, because you're going to hear some of the weirdest things you've ever heard in your life. You're going to hear opinions and thoughts that aren't rooted in the Bible. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, in a sermon this Sunday that, you know, I, I can remember being in a hospital room once where, you know, spiritually everyone's all of a sudden real concerned for this individual and and this individual was also very concerned so questions come up specifically about baptism okay and so everyone's starting to wonder you know is it important um do i need to do it is it just something i should do um you know what kind of important you know what you know all this sort of stuff and everyone in the room's got an opinion everyone's sitting there thinking now, I've heard people say, well, I think as long as you're a good person and, well, you don't really need to as long as, as, long as your heart's in the right place. And, you know, all, you've heard it all, right? It's all of that was going around. And not once did I hear the question asked, well, hey, what does the Bible say about it? No one even cared, right? Let's just, let's just throw it out. And, you know, and so you're going to have conversations with people if you try. And it's, it's, you don't have to try hard. And, 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 and people will talk to you about things and you're going to hear some of the off-the-wall stuff not rooted in the Bible. Everyone's got opinions about everything. But you know what you're going to have to do if you're going to have to have that conversation again? You're going to have to go get some answers because they don't have any, that's for sure. And so as soon as you start having real spiritual conversations or evangelistic conversations or you know talking to people about things that matter, it's going to force you to want to Maybe pay more attention to Bible study, right? Maybe do a little studying on your own, right? Because you want to be better equipped when you go in and have that conversation. And I personally don't think there's any better way to work up a spiritual appetite than by doing spiritual work. It forces you, I mean, you, you live a life where you need the information you're getting. And I've said this for a long time. I've, I've, I've truly believed that the reason, 
you know, every church I know can pull in, you know, three times as many people on Sunday morning than they can for a Bible study, okay? And why, I mean, why is that, you know? If I wasn't being evangelistic, what use would I have to sit in a Bible study? I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't waste my time. I don't need it. Like, I don't, I'm going to sit here just to study just so I can know more. Like, if I'm not going to use it, you know what I mean? I'm not going to go learn it. And so, you know, if you're not planning on doing anything, you don't need to be prepared for it. And Bible study is preparation. That's what it is. It's preparation. It's to prepare us to go out and make a difference in this world, to get busy with the Lord's work. But if you're not planning on being involved in the Lord's work, why would you show up for the preparation? You know what I mean? Like, you don't need to be trained for a job that you're never going to do. And so, our churches need to work up an appetite, okay? We need to get involved in spiritual things so that when we have days like this where we can come together and talk about spiritual things, we show up because we need to be here. Not just because we're supposed to be here, but I, like, I need the fellowship and the encouragement, and I need the, 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 the knowledge. I need, to, I need to go back and forth with people about, like, I need this time to fill the tank up so I can get out there and keep going. Like, that's the idea. And so you know, we have to have a hunger and a thirst for these things that are important. Um, and so, a repentant, a repentant individual's there. Like, they're, they're there. You know, they, they, they hunger and they thirst for these things because they're important to them. Um, you know, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says, Thou, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so, part of a repented life is, well, what is it exactly you're longing for? Okay, and so we've crucified the passions and the desires of the flesh when we were immersed into Christ. And so now, as a Christian, what are our desires, right? What are we longing for? Are we longing for spiritual things? Okay, do you, listen, you, you should enjoy preaching. Not you pre, I mean, you should enjoy listening to a sermon, right? You should enjoy sitting through, I mean, a Bible study should be important to you right? Spending time in your Bible should be something you enjoy doing. Like these aren't things that are a burden. This, these aren't things that you have to force yourself to do if spiritually you're, you're in the place that you need to be, okay? And maybe if, if they are hard for you, that might be an indicator that something is off, right? That your head's not where it should be, that, that you're not focused on the right things right now, okay? You should long to know more about the Lord. You should long to be more about the, the, the Lord's business. And so, um, you know, we, we, you shouldn't have to beg Christians to, to come to a Bible study, as I guess all that I'm saying. You know, repentant individuals um, are part of that because it's important and that's where their perspective's at. <clears throat> okay, back to 2 Corinthians 7 here. Um, he says, uh, what zeal? Okay. <laughs> Sums it up really quickly there. What zeal? Um, Paul sees, notices a zeal about the people, okay, a zeal about the people, the church at Corinth, that wasn't there uh, when he wrote the first letter. And so, you know, word's gotten back to him, and these are things that have become, these are fruit, right, of, of, of keeping with the repentance. And so, you know, I think of that zeal, uh, it, it goes two ways. It's a zeal for God, but it's also a zeal against things that stand opposed to God. And, uh, you know, one way that we can look at it is... I think of zeal, I think of sports fans. I'm not a sports guy, okay? I don't play sports ball, okay? <laughs> um, I, I don't have a favorite team. Um, 
I may look like a guy that played football. I can't even throw one. I'm telling you right now. I can't. I wrestled in high school, which is like the sport for people that don't know how to play sports. Okay. Uh, and I played, I was in the marching band. So I was that guy. Okay. <laughs> which nothing cooler than that. Yeah. Yep. That's it. Yep. Um, but anyway, um, sports fans. Okay. The, and I'm talking about the people that are going out, you know, spending all day in the, the freezing cold rain or all day in the unbearable heat, you know, tailgating for eight hours before a game. And then, and then you know, uh, uh, Super Bowl tickets last year. Anyone want to look it up? What, what, did, uh, what did the average cost a ticket last year? Huh? Three grand? In 2020, now in 2020, the average price of a ticket on StubHub was $7,000. Okay? For the Super Bowl. And there it is. $8,837. Okay? He, yeah, he's like, I just ordered mine. So that's, yeah. Um, can you imagine? Over almost $9,000 for a ticket to a game. Uh, you know, and it's like, that's intense, okay? <laughs> you have to be uh, very zealous for what you're doing, right? To, to be, be doing that sort of thing. But, you know, we get the word fan is short for fanatic, right? And so that's the idea. When we talk about a sports fan, someone that's a, uh, that's a fanatic, it's like, we expect that. Like most people don't bat an, I mean, my neighbors, they, they went, they both went to the Super Bowl, I think, last year and the year before. It, like it was the most normal thing they could think of. You know what I mean? Uh, for me, like, you know, I mean, you couldn't give me a, t- I don't even want to go. Like if you gave me tickets, I'd be like, can I please not go? Just someone else go instead. I don't, I'm not interested, you know, but, but anyway, that's just me. So, uh, but like when you talk about a sports fan, it's not, it's not like you expect that stuff. Let's paint our faces and take our shirts off and it's 30 degrees below and, you know, and, you know, I mean, that's how sports fans are. You get one Christian that acts anything like that and what do we all think? Like, they're nuts. Right, yeah. I mean, we got, there's your norm. What we expect from Christians is just show up from time to time, sit peacefully in the pew, don't make any ruckus, walk out, we'll see you next week. You get anybody that does anything more than that, we think, well, there's some super Christian like, it seems shocking to have, like, if someone in the church comes up and says, hey, how can I help? Like, how, how can I get more involved? Like, the leadership don't know what to do with that. Like, we don't have to beg you. Like, we didn't have to trick you into it somehow. I didn't have to guilt you. Like, you're coming up and volunteering yourself. Like, we don't know how to even handle that situation. You know what I mean? And so, like, with sports, we expect fanatic people in the church it's completely the other way around and so there is no zeal for the lord there's no zeal for eternity it seems like and uh, and that's the problem turn to revelation chapter 3 okay verse uh, verse 15 um church at laodicea laodicea how do you all pronounce it okay the right way <laughs> all right uh verse 15 through 19 here he says uh I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Um, Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, and I've become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, 
so that you may become rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and what? Repent. Laodicea was known for they had a they had a hospital there. They made an uh, an eye ointment, you know. Anyway, that's that's the cultural tie-in there to what Jesus is telling them, you know. Um, but but the idea you, know, you see the connection here though between being zealous and and repentance, you know. They they had the wrong perspective, and you know Jesus is kind of on their case. You know, if you guys could see with spiritual eyes, you would realize that you're you're not in a good way here. You all may be well off physically and that's how they were you know uh, they think they're fine because they're clothed and they're rich and they're doing well and they lived in a good place and all of those sorts of things and um, but the truth is they're just not paying attention and I've been in congregations where this seems to be an appropriate message it's like you've got a nice building and you've got your programs all laid out and everything's running like a well-oiled machine but spiritually it's a mess here you know and sometimes people can't see that because they're blinded by the other things that don't really matter in the big scheme of it. And so the message is be zealous and repent. And zealous for what? Well, not for your building and for your programs, and, you know, but zealous for the Lord, uh, zealous for, for the Lord's work, zealous for the things the Lord is zealous about. That's the idea. So repentance comes with this idea of being zealous. Turn to John chapter 2. Okay, verse 14 he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Consider the intensity. That Jesus comes in, waltzing in with the whip in hand, tells everyone to leave. Listen, without intensity, no one would have listened to him. You understand? You know, without intensity, no one would have took him seriously. Um, you have to come in with some serious zeal for everyone to get out of there. People, oxen, and sheep. And then the disciples, when they witness Jesus doing this, they instantly recall the scripture that said, zeal for your house will consume me. That word zeal means hot enough to boil over. That's the kind of intensity God wants us to have. Ultimately, what's God's house? Right? Yeah, it's our spiritual house our spiritual temple it's that's what we ought to be building up that's what we should be zealous about keeping this a temple for the lord right not turning it into something else not letting other things uh take take that place you think that's the only time that zeal was present in the life of christ i mean what would it take for you to stand up to the persecution the mocking the ridicules what would it take for you to go into a place knowing that you're going to die if you go in there? Right? I mean, zeal was always part of the life of Christ. Shouldn't it be a part of every Christian? For sure. So we need to have zeal to get it done. 
We need to have zeal to get out of our comfort zones. Um, zeal to push us to do the right thing when we're confronted or conflicted. To evangelize the people that need to be evangelized. To show up where, where and when we need to be. All of those things. Last one here, back in 2 Corinthians 7, is the avenging of wrong. The avenging of wrong is what's done to maintain and to protect what's right. Um, it's not just that clearing of your own name. We live in a world that's pretty messed up. And avenging wrong is about trying to correct the disasters that we see taking place in the people around us. Most of this sure is about fixing, you know, the holes in people's lives that sin has left. Whether that's their own sin or somebody else's sin has left in them. Um, the impact that sin has on people's lives and even in the church is a serious thing. Serious thing. And, you know, we have to have some intensity and seriousness about dealing with that. Um, a lot of times all you can do is try to just point people in the right direction and keep encouraging them, um, you know, trying to fix those things. But, you know, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of wrong in this world. You know, we see it, um, you know, children today break my heart. Just And, and not, I mean, there's a bad case, but I'm just saying normal kids that aren't being raised in, in Christian homes. Uh, I, 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 I hate that I see it, but I always see the problems that are going to manifest when they're 18, 19, 20, when they're four and five years old. Like, it's already there. It's already, and I, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, no, we really, we're not seeing it. We really can't see it. You know, things that, that are dealt with throughout the Bible can be dealt with in the church, you know what I mean? Um, raising those kids up a different way. My heart breaks for that, you know. Um, you know, we see... Marriages falling apart, you know, women whose husbands have ran out on them, husbands whose wives have ran out on them, you know, people dealing with the effects of uh, addiction, alcoholism, drugs, hatred, greed, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, that's the people who have just a very, very poor image of what their life is and what it should be. And like all of those things, we encounter that on a day-to-day -day basis. And avenging what's wrong is about trying to repair those things. And, and not just our lives, but in the lives of the people around us. That can only be done with the gospel. Okay, if, if you try to repair that any other way, you're repairing it superficially, right? It's no different than, than an Ezekiel trying to repair those gaps in the wall uh, that will just be another breach. You know, there's nothing else that can fix it, but the gospel can actually heal those areas that have been broken. And so our job, part of repentance, is trying to be proactive about making a difference in those people's lives. And so... Um, and like I said, all we can do to avenge what sin has done is to go in there with the gospel and try to plug the holes and offer hope uh, through the church, through Jesus Christ, through, through belonging to that and being a part of that. But I'm, I'm telling you, this message of repentance is a tremendous message in that if the church got a hold of it, the way it's laid out, just even here, one verse is all we've talked about tonight, but can you imagine the difference that the church could make if the body had these attributes about them? that kind of seriousness, that kind of earnestness, that, you know, these sorts of things. And so um, repentance is not about condemning people. It's about offering hope and getting people on the right path. That's, that's the idea. And so remember, it's in Romans 2, 4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Uh, and again, that, that is not to say that things that are wrong don't need to be pointed out. You know, 
the Lord, you know, we're told there in Matthew that Jesus came to save people from their sins. And it's like, how in the world can you possibly do that without talking about sin? And that's, it seems like that's what the church is trying to do. Uh, we're going to save people from their sin without ever talking about their sin. You have to talk about it. You have to address those things. Um, but that, that can't be the only thing we're doing there. You know what I mean? It's got to be bigger than that. Um, and so, you know, the last thing that Paul says here to the church at Corinth is he says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Okay, and so literally in every possible point, right? And in any place where at one point you might have had blame, you know, you've been found blameless and true, true with repentance. And so, you know, again, keep that in mind. We're dealing with the church here in Corinth, those who are in Christ, you know, um, and so what a, what a significant thing there that... Uh, Here's the thing, can it happen? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 we can't look at stuff like this and say, wouldn't it be nice? We need to look at stuff like this and say, how are we going to get there? Right? If Corinth could do it, and there's never been a more messed up church than Corinth, I'm telling you. Uh, if they could do it, like there's no excuse for any of our congregations. Okay, and so to act like this is a pipe dream would be foolish. Okay, we, we can get there. We can get there. All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll close out. Back to parables next week. Um, Luke 16 is what we're going to get into. Read Luke 16 this week. Uh, We're going to talk about the shrewd servant. um, And the context goes right back to the same context we've been dealing with, with the lost sheep, coin, and the prodigal son. Keep those things in mind. Uh, We'll pull all that out next week together. Uh, let's, Let's pray. Father God, tonight we're grateful, we're thankful for the opportunity that we've had to come together and to uh, talk about your word. And we pray that, uh, that Father, that these things have, uh, have built us up, gave us some perspective here uh, on where we're at as, as, uh, as your people. And, uh, Father, that uh, we, we understand where we can be and, and that uh, we make, uh, well, we just we make moves to get, get, to get there. And so uh, we pray for integrity, um, strength in our part, spiritual uh, endurance here to keep moving forward in the right way and not get sidetracked or distracted by the things going on in this world. Uh, Father, we can keep a heavenly perspective, keep our minds set on Christ and on things above. And so we pray, um, we pray for that this upcoming week here and just thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.